Hi and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're working on the theme of AI 101. What is machine learning? What is AI? When people talk about deep learning, neural networks and such, what do they actually mean? What, what is the technology they're talking about? This month I'm talking with Greg Edwards from Decoded on just this and getting to the bottom of how these technologies actually work. We discuss some of the history of AI development, some of the maths involved, what machine learning and deep learning actually are, and other strange and interesting AI subjects like automata, genetic algorithms, and GANs. We also talk about what the frontier of AI looks like currently, and what this year might hold for AI development. We also discuss throughout how easy it is to get involved with this technology, so stay tuned. Also, if you have any questions, contact us via the website machine-ethics.net. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machineethics. And thanks very much for your time and hope you enjoy. Um, so thanks, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. If you could give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you do, that'd be great. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I, I'm Greg, uh, Greg Edwards. I'm a data scientist at Decoded. Uh, we're a tech education um, company. So we demystify a lot of the emerging tech trends um, for large companies um, and help people understand the value of new technologies. Um, my specific area of expertise and interest is data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence. You know, my title is data scientist. It's uh, a title that is um, becoming increasingly popular. I think I saw last mm. year it was, I think, the highest growing job title on LinkedIn. Um, and the reason for that is the role of a data scientist is essentially to take all this data that companies are collecting. Mm-hmm. And the amount of data that companies are collecting is sort of always growing. Yeah. and actually turn that into something that's useful. So turning that into an insight, a product, or a decision, uh, and that usually looks like a, a prediction or or a graph or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I I spend a lot, a lot of my time actually uh, up in front of people talking about um, you know how data science works, what data scientists do, um, and how you can use data science to actually create value and create some some sort of interesting insights. I got into data science, machine learning, and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, I, I actually was like, I was an EC major in college because uh, I went to college in the States, um, EC being economics. Sure. Um, yeah. I then went and worked in advertising um, technology or ad tech. Ooh. And I, I yeah, <laughs> sorry. And I kind of got into uh, machine learning and data science almost through frustration. Um, so I, I was working with Excel every day. So there's, you know, that lovely uh, spreadsheet software from Microsoft. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that our listeners would be aware of this uh, okay. Excel, I, yeah. I'm used to kind of assuming no knowledge. So I feel like I, I, I kind of always explain everything. But um, uh, yeah, so I, I was really frustrated with that. And I, I was using it on a daily basis. Um, I would spend like a day kind of like manually filling out spreadsheet. Um, and I figured that, that you know, there has to be a better way of doing things. So I went online, I kind of taught myself um, how to code in a language called Python. Um, I found some incredible online resources uh, um, talking about machine learning mm. and why that's useful and how that turns data into something uh, more compelling. Uh, and I really sort of started pursuing that. Um, I then ended up doing a master's at Royal Holloway University of London. My master's was in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, I did some work there on building um game playing algorithms. So having a program that could play many different games um, and hopefully try and get some sort of artificial intelligent program as a result. Uh, and then since then I've been working with Decoded, kind of sharing that experience with 
with people uh, and trying to get other people super excited about machine learning and artificial intelligence in the same way I am. Great. So this this episode that I invited you on, Greg, uh, was specifically kind of aimed at the audience who maybe have, um, are interested in AI and machine learning. They've heard a lot about it. There's a lot in the media at the, at the moment about it. They might even hear about it um, in respect to their jobs or to um, new products coming into their, their workplace. Um, so the whole aim of this uh, particular episode is kind of a 101 what is this AI that people are talking about, uh, this machine learning, all these sort of terms? Can we get to grips with these terms and really kind of have a base level um, that the listeners can take away and, and use uh, and, and have that in their discussions with other people um, when they start seeing these things in the media or they go and chat to people in the pub? So super um, thank you for coming on. Um, the first question actually is the same question I ask everyone, and that is the extremely hard question of what is AI, Greg? Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? That it's, it's a really um, persistent question. Um, I, th- I think the reason it's a hard one is because artificial intelligence, AI, is a very exciting, uh, but it's also quite a slippery term. So if you look at actually where and when AI is used, I think it's probably more often used by marketers and move news articles than it is maybe used in science. Uh, the best description that I've heard is, and, and, and the definition that I kind of ascribe to, is that artificial intelligence isn't one technology. It's really a goal. It's an objective. It's the idea of creating a machine that exhibits some form of intelligence. Now, actually, you know, to define mm. it, you've got to ask, what do you mean by intelligence? And intelligence is a really, really tricky term to pin down. Sure, sure. Um, so if you can't define intelligence, you can't really define AI. But uh, you, you could define, um, like you were kind of mentioning, a, a goal uh, which might be that my I think it is intelligent to do X, and then therefore right. a, this AI is intelligent in that way, maybe. Could you say that? Right, but I, absolutely. So it's kind of... It's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's right. kind of subjective to, to what your definition of intelligence is. Yeah. So, you know, and I think the definition of artificial intelligence changes. Um, the gentleman who actually coined the term, John McCarthy, um, he coined that back in the 50s. He's actually quoted as saying that as soon as it works, no one calls it AI anymore. Mm. As in, you know, the goalpost kind of shifts with the technology. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's really true because I think if you ask someone what AI was back in the 50s, you know, really what they thought of AI, you know, our smartphones could do now. Probably the power of a, a handheld uh, calculator could can execute some sort of logic in a way that seems very, it would have seemed intelligent back then. But now our expectations for intelligence uh, in computers is a lot higher. Hmm. Uh, that's really interesting. And actually, um, I was wondering if we could like carry that through and kind of discuss briefly where this, this term grew up from and, and kind of like some of those... Uh, points in history that are interesting from from then to now you've got kind of like a bucket list of the the really interesting ai things that have happened in those um 68 years yeah um yeah so at, at decoded when we kind of break this technology down we often like to tell the story um of machine learning mm. uh, for me i think like a lot of the technologies we use in the, in the 21st century it really starts at the end of world war Two. so yeah. you have you have a lot of these like like uh, John von Neumann, who was a mathematician working on the Manhattan Project, um, and then Alan Turing, who was working on the Enigma code. Um, 
these great minds, these were the kind of the foundation to a lot of the, the concepts that grew into the pursuit of artificial intelligence. Mm. So they were the first ones really to realize that computers, as they were then, which were these massive um, machines that would take up entire rooms, these things were actually capable of thinking. Um, that was that, That's an idea that we kind of take for granted now, that computers are able to execute logic, reason with some information, uh, and create some sort of new information or some, or some outcome. Uh, back then, that wasn't clear. Um, it was just, there was a lot of binary coding. It wasn't obvious that logic executed in a complex way. Um, and so they really championed that idea. Um, Alan Turing famously coming up with um, the, the imitation game, the name of that movie. Uh, yep. Uh, you know, in that, in the imitation game, he basically states, can a computer um, actually have a conversation with a human in a way that fools the human into thinking that they're, that they're talking to a human and not a computer? If it was able to do that, then it would exhibit some form of intelligence. And it, would, it would pass the Turing test. So yeah. he, really, he really kind of fired the starting gun on this idea that these computers at some point in the future are going to become intelligent enough that you can have a convincing conversation with them. And then, you know, all a lot of computer scientists picked up that baton and decided to run with it. Um, one of the first uh, to actually run with it was McCarthy, who you mentioned earlier. Yep. Um, so McCarthy was actually a student of John von Neumann's in Caltech. And he, along with a few other computer scientists, got together in the summer of 1956 at Dartmouth. And they decided to basically brainstorm all summer about where this field was going, where this idea of intelligent computers was headed uh, and how they could help it along. At the time, um, there was a number of different terms for what we now call artificial intelligence. Um, I think the terms like thinking machines and automator were floating around. Mm. Uh, and so he decided to try and find a neutral catch-all term, came up with artificial intelligence. It stuck, uh, and I think that's the term we've kind of been using since to describe that pursuit, right? So, you know, then it wasn't a specific technology. It was just an idea, uh, a goal that they were kind of firing for. And so John McCarthy was one of these early believers in the power of thinking machines of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And he really wanted to show how clever computers could be um, so he decided to try and program a computer to play chess, right? So chess is a really hard game. It's hard for even intelligent humans. So if a computer can play it, then it will be intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, so his approach to that was that he, he was a chess player and he actually he knew some very clever chess players as well. And he decided if he could program their expert knowledge of the game into a computer and then have the computer play, play it back, then the computer will be showing some sort of intelligence. Um, so to do that, you'd have to actually handwrite all the rules for every, <laughs> yep. for, for every square on the chessboard, for every piece, for every location. Um, and so he kind of basically ran out of steam because he didn't have the computation power, for one thing. Um, it's also really dependent on the ability of the expert. And I just don't think he had the patience. So it was in practice and it, it didn't really get anywhere. Um, you fast forward a few years and... Someone else has a has a, has another go, and he, and he, this guy's name was Arthur Samuel, and he he said essentially we're wasting our tr our time trying to hand program all these rules. What if we let the computer do it? What if we actually have the computer write these rules automatically? Um, how are we going to do that? Well, we'll have the computer collect some data. We'll have it actually play thousands of games. 
Um, and he decided to start with checkers or drafts as opposed to chess because it was a little bit more simple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he essentially had the game play itself over and over again, collect data, and then learn from this data to write its own rules, write its own algorithm. Uh, and this was the first case of machine learning. And so machine learning is, is, is a really hot term today because the technology is now being applied at scale with all of the data that we've collected from the rise of the internet. And we're actually seeing some really incredible um, solutions. So yeah. Yeah. that was how basically AI got started. And then the, the paradigm shift that took us into machine learning, which is now really um, accelerating the growth in the area. Great. Well, machine learning. Um, so what has changed in that time? Uh, there's, there's been this huge explosion of interest um, in the last um, five or six years about kind of the new epoch of machine learning and its uses. So from, from then, what's the technology kind of um, evolved into to rekindle so much interest? Yeah, I think um, one, one key realisation is that actually that concept and kind of the technology has been around for a while. Um, what's making it really relevant now is a couple of things. First thing is the amount of data we're collecting, right? So in order to actually build these programs, build these algorithms, machine learning needs data. So it relies on data, not humans, to write its rules. Um, and so the data is the fuel for the fire. We've, we're now collecting incredible amounts of data. We have the explosion of data, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first, the first um, ingredient. Uh, and I guess we can uh, thank the internet for that. Yeah, we can. Yeah, thanks, uh, Tim Berners-Lee. Thanks, Vince. Thanks, Tim. Uh, yeah, and so without that data, a lot of this wouldn't be, wouldn't be possible. So for every application, you know, beh sitting behind that machine learning application is a huge data set that it's actually learned from. Um, the second part, I would say, is the computational power. So the, uh, the processing power of computers is continuing to rise exponentially. So I, a few years ago, I think people were getting, getting kind of worried about Moore's law. Um, mm -hmm. But in the mid 2000s, computer scientists um, and computer engineers started to realize that there's a type of processing chip in all of our computers that is actually really good at handling data problems. It's really good for machine learning. Um, so rather than using the CPU, uh, which computers used to process most tasks mm -hmm. um, they actually geared the gpus the graphic processing units um in computers to start handling large data sets because it's and uh, stop me if i'm, I'm wrong I'm, I'm i think the way i understand it is the graphics the gpu um is much more um asynchronous than the gpu is is that right right yeah, yeah. it's essentially that it executes very simple tasks all at the mm -hmm. same time, as opposed to the C CPU, which is capable of handling more complex operations, but in a sequence. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of problem that you want when you're rendering an image in, in, on a screen, when you're handling shading on a video game. You want to handle very simple computations, uh, but many of them at the same time to render one picture. Uh, same thing with data. If you can handle lots and lots of simple additions, multiplication tasks, but do them all at the same time, then you're going to actually get through your data a lot quicker. Great. Um, so I fear that this question might be a long one. So what I'm going to task you with now, Greg, yeah. if you would be so kind, is to 
succinctly say how neural networks work. So the most commonly used machine learning method at the moment is using these kind of node nodal framework. Mm. And I was wondering if you could explain how that worked. Easy peasy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's a for sure. So neural networks are the one tool in the, t in the toolkit that is machine learning. So machine learning is the concept of learning from data to build an algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, and there's many different frameworks you can use to do that. You can use something called decision trees, which is like, which are like asking yes, no questions about data. Um, another option is neural nets. Um, now, neural networks are, have been around actually conceptually since about the 40s. Um, and they're basically the idea of building a model using the blueprints of um, brains that we see in, in nature, animal brains, human brains. And the power of neural nets is the ability to create very complex models from very simple building blocks. And those building blocks are neurons. So our brains are made up of millions and billions and trillions of neurons mm -hmm. that are all interconnected. Um, kind of like how society is made up of just humans, right? Humans are easy to understand. Society is a bit more complex. Um, and a neuron essentially takes some signal in um, and depending on how much of that, how big that signal is, how small that signal is, it then sends another signal out to another network of neurons. So that's a very simple operation. Mm -hmm. If you scale that up, you can actually start to create very complex chains um, of logic and complex rules. Now, so I think one of the first things to say about neural networks is that they're a black box algorithm. So what that means is it's really hard to look inside how that algorithm is working and understanding how it's understanding the data that it's given. So we know how to build it. We know how to code in a, a neuron or a node, and we know how to connect those nodes together. Yeah. We also know how to give that network of nodes data in a way that it can actually start making predictions that are meaningful. So we give it what we call supervised uh, training data. Let's look at an example of, of how we might actually use a neural network to, to do something useful. So say we wanted, we had a prediction question. Um, a common one is we might want to predict a house's value. Um, so what we would do is we would take some information about that house. Um, maybe we would have, I don't know, the number of windows on the house or the, mm. the floor area um, or the location of the house. And then we want to take that input information and predict an output and that output is the price. Now to build the model um, to have the to make machine learning happen, we've actually got to give the neural network a lot of historical data, where we actually know the input data for a house, so the number of windows, the, the floor area, mm -hmm. and the actual price of that house. And then what we do is we give it to the neural network. And what the neural network does is it takes that input data, and it just tries lots and lots of different random numbers, random combinations of that information, and create a prediction. Now at the start that prediction is really crap, it's really rubbish. Um, so the model basically starts dumb. Um, and then what it does is it actually looks at how good its prediction was versus the real price of that house. And it looks at an error. So it has some sort of measure of, of the, the, the error of its prediction. It then looks inside itself. It looks at all those numbers, the ways it tried to connect the inputs and it adjusts them. It, it tweaks them in small ways that reduces that error. And it does that for thousands and thousands of training examples. So, so for thousands and thousands of examples of houses. And then what you have at the end is you have 
a neural network that has tweaked its internal parameters, um, the sort of internal adjustments, mm -hmm. levers and, and pulleys, to reduce the error of all of its predictions to the smallest amount possible. And what you have at the end is you have a neural network that will take the input data from a new house where you don't know the price, and it will give you a very accurate prediction of that price. Yeah, uh, That's obviously extremely useful because now you're predicting the future. Um, the issue is, if you look into that neural network, which is now just uh, a bunch of numbers, essentially, a matrix mm -hmm. of weights that have all been adjusted over thousands of data points to try and create this prediction, those numbers don't really make any sense to a human. They're kind of just a jumble. Um, and picking apart why that algorithm, that neural network, is actually generating that prediction based on its input is very difficult. So that's what we mean when we talk about it being a black box. Mm -hmm. um, so the predictions it creates are very accurate, and that's really useful, and it's really powerful, but there are limitations with the black box approach. Um, and this is actually rising, raising some concerns, um, particularly for governments. So uh, at the end of last year, the uh, city of New York actually they commissioned a task force to look into the way algorithms are used in the city. Uh, and basically, they're, they're making an assault on black box algorithms. Because if these algorithms are used to predict something that affects people, so maybe where policemen go in the city to, to patrol the streets, predicting crime, that sort of stuff, they need to be, uh, be able to understand why the models are making the decisions they are mm -hmm. uh, in order to hold them accountable. Yeah. So if we, we step back it slightly, um, what we've got here is essentially a computer program yeah. th that you feed lots and lots of data. Um, and if you're, if you're using training data, you label all that data. Mm -hmm. So you have your input and you know what your output should be. Mm -hmm. And you do that millions of times, possibly. Mm -hmm. And through that process um, of, of basically kind of a mathematical equation per input per neuron per whatever the topology of that network is mm -hmm. you you creating a an algorithm which slowly gets better over over those iterations at whatever the job is yeah. um and that job might be to send policemen into a certain area um like you said but would possibly better be represented with the house scenario where you're basically kind of looking at historical data and making a prediction on what the future thing will be. And what I like about that example is it's it's not really uh, directly affecting anyone per se um, to say that your house might be worth a certain amount of money. Mm. Um, whereas the police example is obviously uh, one of those kind of biased situations where it's almost dogmatic. If you start sending lots of police in the same place, then you create an environment in that place because of that action. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, what what kind of other, I mean, we, we, we could talk about that like for ages, but what other kind of examples of uh, uses do you have for this technology that we can then kind of talk about and get into the nitty gritty of? Oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> How, how long are we running this session for? Okay. So, uh, the, reason, the reason neural networks are super exciting is because they are so generalizable. They're so flexible to the type of data that we give them. Mm. So if you, if you collect housing data, if you collect that data on the uh, square footage and the price, that's something you can just stick in a spreadsheet. Um, and you know, we, we, that's a type of data called structured data. So computers have been handling structured data for as long as they've been around. 
Um, the, the really cool things about neural nets are they don't care whether the data you're putting in is neatly structured in a spreadsheet or whether it's image data. So you can actually use them to take images and use those images as input data and then take those images and create a prediction. So it can look at an image and say, I think that's an image of a cat because I've mm. seen thousands of images of cats before. And I know that this one, this mixture of pixels lines up in a way that I think this is a cat as opposed to a dog. Mm. Um, and actually you can really easily these days build a very accurate neural network that will take an input image and it will be able to tell a cat from a dog using, I don't know, around about 20, 30 examples. Um, and so that's really, that's really, really powerful because then you can start applying that technology to things like driverless cars. So identifying whether there's a car in front of you or not. Um, and really the, the, the excitement around deep learning, which is the general term we apply, we, I say we, the community <laughs> to um, the practice of applying neural nets, being applied to things like text and it's being applied to things like images and videos. Um, and that is actually most of the data we collect. And it's a lot of the most compelling problems we have. Yeah. And a lot of those, um, those data sets are, uh, have training data available as well, which is why it's um, kind of almost the lowest hanging fruit, if you like, because we yeah. have the, the internet with, with a wealth of information or a wealth of structured image data, which has been tagged or, or the, mm -hmm. such like. Yeah. So you can kind of use all that and leverage that in producing these algorithms. Exactly. Yeah. So the reason why we're seeing a lot of applications with face data, for instance, and cats and dogs are used as an example, is because we have so many, you know, so much training data on them. We have loads of pictures of cats. There was actually there was a there was a research paper done that took um, all the videos from YouTube, and it created composite images um, of similar frames in YouTube videos. So it's basically trying to see what images turn up most frequently in YouTube videos. And then it would create an average of those uh, those images. Mm. And, and I think the most popular image was a human face. And they created a composite image of the human face. Uh, and then the second most popular image uh, uh, was a cat, was a cat's face. So that's our like, natural inclination to just, I don't know, take cat videos and stick them on the internet. Yeah, yeah. And but I, it's I th depend on the data you have. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's a really important point because I think you've you've stepped over something which is if you if we have lots of data in a certain of a certain kind then the algorithm is going to reproduce that it's not it's not like um clever in a sense that it's doing something novel it's doing exactly what we want it to do which is work out what all this stuff is and all that stuff just happens to be mostly cats so it's found cats right, right. so um it's I, there's a lot of like throwing around terminology about uh, intelligence and stuff like that. But essentially it's doing um, this black box thing on whatever data we give it. And that data, it represent, you know, is represented in the, the output of the algorithm. Yeah. I, I think you kind of touched on uh, an interesting point earlier where, you know, the housing example, that doesn't affect anyone's life and it doesn't actually ingrain bias in. No one's naturally biased towards house prices. They're like a, a product of the market. Um, but maybe if you have something that's predicting where police should go, uh, and then where police go, they actually find more crime. And so it kind of ingrains that bias. Uh, those are the kind of applications that you need to think about because the prediction of the algorithm actually is affecting 
the environment that it's trying to predict about. Um, and the best kind of measure against that um, is ensuring that it's constantly retraining. So I think machine learning is creating this paradigm shift in, in the world of model building, mm. where before you, know, you created a model, you would maybe make a model on a spreadsheet in Excel or, or some mathematical model, uh, and then you build it and it would create some prediction and you pass it over to the client or whatever, and you deploy it and it would be good. Um, but now the, the, the paradigm shift in machine learning is that these models are making predictions, but then they can learn from those predictions. They can actually see how good that prediction was. Um, so a really important step is ensuring that it's constantly learning from its predictions in order to try and smooth out any bias in the data mm. that it's yeah, so so you could have an algorithm which is constantly learning and having that feedback loop incorporated, and you could have an algorithm which is somewhat unnecessary to do that. So you cap it when it's good enough. So yeah. let's let's say the the dog and cat example. You might find that it's so good at recognizing dogs and cats and the difference between them in images that actually we can stop learning now with that particular algorithm and we can to a certain percentage agree that this is good enough for whatever application at identifying cats and dogs. So you yeah. kind of got those uh, two ways of working with these algorithms, if you like. Yeah, exactly. But again, it's not just, I think there's a, there's a classic trope that machine learning is great for recognizing images of cats. And like, that's as far as it goes. Yeah. Um, but of course, it, it, you know, it's much further reaching than that. Uh, that's a common example. But I, the exciting thing is that this technology has really arrived it's and it's incredibly accessible so it's it's really um championing the open source movement so a lot of the code and a lot of the ways that people build these algorithms to perform things like image recognition or speech recognition or text recognition sentiment analysis which is understanding the meaning of written words um a lot of that is accessible for all to see so even cutting edge research uh, and so the real question now is like, how, how do we apply this stuff? Like, how do we actually match it together to create like cool products or solutions for the, for the problems that we, we have? Mm. Um, and I think actually, you know, we're talking at the start of 2018. I think 2018 is going to be a year that really starts to piece those pieces together um, because the foundation, the accessible foundation is there. Like in 2017, I saw an incredible amount of online resources just like popping up all over the place. Um, and now it's like so easy to actually get into this stuff mm. that I, people are starting to piece it together in, in, in more interesting ways and create some cool cool things. And I think it's, it's become um, really open, like you said, but also it's become um, so um, SaaSed, um, so uh, software as a service or platform yeah. as a service. So lots of those big companies like Google and Facebook, not mm, actually, I'm not sure if Facebook have got a platform for this, but um, Google, Microsoft, IBM, um, these sorts of companies have their kind of AI offering, which is off the shelf computing power plus the algorithms you want to use because um, there's somewhat um, a set of algorithms which are commonly used with with this technology so you, I think I saw the other day you could using Python you could um, import a library and within maybe five or six lines of code um, using tensorflow mm -hmm. just have an algorithm running um, using Google's platform for doing that um, and get you know a re result and that's 
you know, it's fundamentally different from where we were not that many years ago, um, where you'd have to do a lot of learning. You know, you'd have to be PhD level to kind of get into this. So, um, like you said, I think that's, um, that's a fantastic kind of way it's moving as well, the whole yeah. industry. And that's really happened in the last last couple of years, like the amount of accessibility to libraries. And as you're saying, um, platforms like Google or Amazon, they're tying in a lot of this, uh, the capabilities in with their uh, their cloud platforms. So with AWS, mm. um, Google Cloud, they've got Cloud ML. Um, so they package it in with their cloud services. And yeah, it, it's it's incredibly easy to use. So I've used cloud, cloud services. It's like, I think the, the minimum is like, like three to four lines of code. You need one line to import your libraries, one line for your data, one line model and, uh, and train it, and then another one to, to spit out some output. It's, it, it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, and I think it's actually lowering the barrier to, to, to code. Yeah. I, I have friends that are picking this up um, as a full-time job with with almost no code background so it's a, it's a really um advanced application of coding and maths hmm. and statistics um but it's gone to a point now where anyone can kind of pick it up and start playing around with it and really at the end of the day with deep learning particularly there's not a lot of maths explaining it it's 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 a heuristic it's it's something that works in practice, but we haven't got all the theory to explain it. Yeah. So if, if you're playing around with it and tweaking it and trying to see how it works and getting some results, you're as far as long as as a lot of the uh, leading researchers, really. Mm. So it's actually the maths inherent in how a neuron works, maybe, and then by combination of lots of neurons, the, that's the magic, basically, would you say? Um, yeah, the, the, the magic is kind of... Well, let's let's not say, say magic because we're we're trying yeah. to explain everything. So it's not magic; it's yeah. it's statistics and it's um, computation. Everything should be explainable. Magic yeah. does not. Um, yeah, it's emergence. I I would I would say it depends. You can get kind of philosophical mm. with it. But. Yeah. Well, this leads me uh, nicely onto uh, my next question, which is yeah. other strange and interesting AI-ish things like uh, emergent behavior, um, such as mm. can be found in automata genetic algorithms which could be uh, different ways of learning from experience or genetic topologies of neural networks um what interesting things are we seeing other than this the the new hotness which is the deep learning um so do, do you want me to kind of intro each one of those things um or are we going to kind of assume that people kind of understand what automata and things are Let's not assume. Let's dig into it. Sure. Okay. So, um, automata was were actually my entry point to machine learning and AI in a lot of ways because mm. I did economics university, um, and economics is this field that loves to do what's called top-down analysis of really big complex problems. So they love to build models about aggregate demand and aggregate um, supply, and and basically create some sort of equation that's going to describe how the economy works. Um, now, you find out somewhere along the line, I think for me, it was like in my third year, mm. that that's rubbish and it doesn't work. <laughs> okay. It's not a very effective way of modeling the economy because it's really complex. So these models are useful because they help you gain some intuition, but they have no predictive power. It's really difficult to distill all the movements of, you know, economic markets into one equation and have it work and, and predict something. 
So an alternative approach was this was called bottom up, uh, and I took a class uh, from, uh, from a professor that's championing um, an automata approach to modeling economics. So automata are very simple um, artificial agents, so an artificial robot simulated in a world, in a virtual world, in an environment. And these automata can be really, really simple. They can just be um, a cell on a on a pixel grid that can either be on or off and these automata can interact with their environment and you can make lots of them so you can stick thousands of automata in one environment have them abide by some simple rules so maybe have them simulate some kind of game of life which Mm -hmm. is a classic example of automata uh, and then run the environment see what they do sit back and then kind of just see what happens Um, and this this is thought of as a as a less mathematically rigorous but more maybe realistic simulation of what's happening in the real world. Hmm. So if you can write the simple rules for each automata, um, and maybe that automata is like a simulation of a company or even a, a, a consumer, an individual, and then you stick all of them together, you let it run and see what happens. Um, you actually see what's called emergent behavior, which is the emergence of some large scale uh, behaviors that aren't explained by the simple rules that you wrote for the automata. Um, so an example would be in the game of life. Um, I encourage anyone to look it up because it's mm-hmm. great videos on YouTube. Is by creating very simple automata and uh, with some very simple rules. And depending on the way you set them up, they can exhibit some really funky behavior. They can move together. They can hunt each other. They can cooperate. Yeah, um, it almost is- looks organic in its form as it's running, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's really interesting. It's very visually alluring and very visually interesting. Um, I don't know what it tells us. Um, I think there's like an increasing amount of work on that, but um, I think it's a very intuitive and appealing approach to complex systems. Um, and what we mean by a complex system is just something that's you know, really complex and too hard to describe with a single equation, mm-hmm. um, like society, like economics, like you know, big things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's an interesting idea and now that that idea of simulating a population, of simulating a, an almost an organism, is being transferred into artificial intelligence in interesting ways. Um, so you mentioned genetic algorithms. That's the approach of essentially creating an algorithm uh, and have it improve, uh, improve itself through an evolutionary process. So you might have an algorithm, very simple algorithm for, for tackling some sort of job. Uh, and you would create thousands of copies of that algorithm, and you would change each copy of that in a slight, in a slightly different way. You'd simulate a mutation. Mm-hmm. You'd run the, these algorithms on the problem. You see which ones did well. You kill off the ones that didn't, or you interbreed them, or you do a number of different things. And then you basically simulate evolution. You s- simulate natural selection. Uh, and this has a really interesting. This has really interesting results. You can get really efficient algorithms from doing this. Now, simulating evolution is like really computationally intensive, right? Because it's a huge problem. Mm. So it's still got limited applications. uh, And there are some limitations in the way it's applied. Um, People run into a lot of local minima, which is like, you know, the algorithm algorithm, uh, ends up on a non-optimal solution. Um, Mm. But it is is a very useful approach for things like optimization problems, where you have you know, five different levers you can pull. Maybe you're, you're operating a supply chain. Um, you want to know which products to buy, when to transfer them, when to move them. There's loads of different decisions you can make. 
what's the best way to do it all to maximize your profit? So an optimization problem like that is, is usually well suited to uh, genetic algorithms, but these are now being applied to neural networks. And people are saying, well, can we optimize the shape and the structure of a neural network mm -hmm. using algorithms, using an evolutionary process? Um, and research in that area is really holding up because I think largely because of the computational power we um, researchers have at their disposal. Uh, it's very computationally intensive. And now we're at a point where we can start actually almost evolving these neural nets, which sounds super sci-fi and super... <laughs> but um, I think it's an interesting area of research. It intuitively uh, makes sense to me. You know, mm. the best example of intelligence we have is is biological and that was formed through an evolutionary process. So it, it stands to reason that, that you can kind of simulate that on a computer. Yeah, I concur. I think that's, um, like you said, it's, it's the obvious next step, if you like. I have here a question about the frontier of AI, but I guess somewhat already answered that. Is there anything else which is kind of sticking out um, at the moment, um, which might might affect us this year or, or in the next coming years? Affect us this year? I think um, uh, GANs are pretty hot right now. Um, so if you've heard of the term, have you seen deep fakes? I don't think I have um, actually, no. Okay, so... Um, a few years ago, a guy called Ian Goodfellow um, invented uh, a sort of a format for a neural network called generative um, adversarial networks. He basically pitted two networks against each other uh, and had one network try and fool the other um, and applied this to images. And so what this what this ended up doing is it ended up generating images. Um, so if you apply into face, facial images, you have a network that's generating fake faces trying to fool the other network. And this means that you can kind of generate entirely new but very convincing pieces of data uh, and entirely new but very convincing faces. Uh -huh. um, so it, and GANs are really interesting because they capture the essence of a piece of data. So with an artwork that might be like the style of the artwork, um, with recordings of someone's spe someone speaking, it's their voice. Um, so it allows you to start replicating humans both visually and focally. Um, and so some uh, kind of some developers with nefarious intent, uh, intentions have applied this to uh, copying celebrities' faces and putting them on, place, on bodies that they shouldn't be on um, and lots of uh, sort of controversy as a result of that. Um, and so there was an article a few days ago in the, New in the New York Times that was, here come the fake videos too. So this is kind of I don't know, riding on the trails of the uh, the coattails of the fake news movement. So I, I'm I'm interested to see if that if that gains um, captures the imagination of the public. That might be something we hear a lot about. Um, but the potential of GANs of this of this type of network that can sort of generate its own data um, extend way beyond like you know deception. You can use them to actually speed up the training process because you can generate your own simulated data to learn from. Mm. Um, so that's going to help things like uh, medical imaging. Um, and it's going to be used in, in some pretty interesting visual applications. I, I saw the other day uh, an application where you can basically do a rough sketch of a landscape and it will create a, almost a picture-perfect version of that landscape automatically from that rough sketch. But it will, it, it will have a tree where you drew a tree and it will have a mountain where... You drew a mountain, but yeah. it will look like, which is kind of cool. So yeah. that's 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 another interesting, interesting area. Um, and then I think the the area of reinforcement learning. Um, it'd be interesting to see where that goes. So re reinforcement learning is the idea of placing a machine learner 
um, in an environment. So where the predictions that it's making are actually actions and those actions affect some kind of reward. So this is applied to chess. This is applied to famously with DeepMind, AlphaGo and the game of Go. And this is where a lot of people uh, expect us to start developing algorithms that get closer to this idea of general intelligence, of this problem-solving ability. Um, so if you, if you give uh, a learning agent a problem and allow it to learn from getting reward, will it learn how to abstract its problem-solving powers on that one problem? Maybe it's the Atari game of Breakout. Will it be able to transfer those problem-solving skills onto another problem? And then can you keep transferring that problem-solving skills and keep kind of zooming out and extrapolating the problem uh, and, and build something that's capable of solving a range of different problems? Um, that's, that's very much, I think, an open area of research, but it's quite an interesting. One. I think I think that's almost the holy grail of of the AI effort, isn't it? The kind of general intelligence idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because one of the things that, not to get too philosophical, but mm. I think one of the one of the outcomes of all of this research and all of this uh, development is that it's kind of challenging our notion of intelligence. Uh, in that, I think when John McCarthy in the 50s came up with the idea of artificial intelligence, I think people were much more comfortable defining intelligence. You know, humans are intelligent, animal, animals are not. Um, but now we have computers, and computers are really good at doing some things that we're not doing. Really good at handling lots and lots of structured data, for one thing. Um, really good at, you know, even getting better at us, um, better than humans at recognizing images. Um, and so it's the idea that there's not really one intelligence so saying that there can be a general intelligence, will that happen for us? Or will there just be lots of very tailored, specific, powerful, but narrow intelligences that kind of get stitched together? Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think this the, the, the idea of general in intelligence is an interesting one. There are Do loads of different thoughts on that, you know, whether you're a singularist or, you know, you're an Elon Musk of the world and you think there's going to be a singularity and everything's going to go crazy and the robot's hmm. going to take over. I, I don't know, but um, could you just stick your um, stake in the ground and and say what you would think of those different arguments? Or sure, I mean, it's very. It seems logical to me that um, an algorithm that is capable of self improving um, will be able to improve itself to a point where it continues to improve itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the interesting question around that is is how does it define improvement? So what is your value function? What is it optimizing for? Um, that is a problem that is realized by the community. DeepMind have set up an ethics community where, and I think the leading I, the leading solution to that is basically have it always check with a human. So it, it will always try and optimize some value function and, mm. and maximize its reward. Yep. Now, if, if it, and it will try and reverse engineer that value function to try and get as much reward as possible. And and humans are really hard to reverse engineer yeah. humans are unpredictable so un unless that means it kind of <laughs> it kind of uh, starts torturing humans to, yeah to, um, i think if if, if you want to learn more about that you can check out the um the paperclip argument yeah. i think the paperclip um machine if you if you look up that that um you'll find things about paperclip um this algorithm taking over the world because of its um job to to make paperclips also a very uh, addictive game that I like wasted a few hours on. Yes, um, I haven't actually played that yet. Someone's uh, made it into a web game, haven't they? Yeah, it's like it's really mindless, and you and you, 
end up wasting hours of your life and you're like why why do i do that it's one of those um but i didn't i didn't really give you a proper answer i i would say that i think uh the singularity thing i think it's definitely possible i think the main constraint um is computational power um i don't think that's taken for a given i think some people think it's our understanding it's a, it's our understanding of these models i think if you have enough computational power you can simulate you know really anything um so it's really it's kind of a the, i guess the scary conclusion there is it's kind of a comedy and it's kind of over what sorry a computational arms race. So mm. whoever's got the processing power, whether that processing power will be implemented in a centralized fashion. So whether it's going to be one really clever computer or whether it's going to be distributed and, and decentralized remains to be seen. But I, I certainly think it's possible. Wow. You heard it here first, folks. All right. If, if I was going to lean in on, on that myself, I would probably side with um, the idea that our brains are kind of stitch, uh, are stitched together of lots of these componentized areas. So we have the, the visual cortex, for example, and things like that. So I feel like for me, the way to go would be a, um, a big string of different algorithms with different simple individual jobs to create a larger structure and that larger structure might have an algorithm to make sense of the larger structure and so on and so forth. I think for me, that's what makes most sense, but um, yeah. it hasn't happened yet. So we'll see. We, we can maybe bet on it. How's that, Greg? Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of the way things are going, right? So there's, mm. you know, I, 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 earlier I was talking about, you know, rules-based systems and versus machine learning. Really a lot of what we see as AI. So if you see a, a smart inverted commas chatbot, mm. um, it's probably got a bit of machine learning that's making some sort of predictions about the best thing to say, but then that gets stitched together with some rules-based things. So, it's, yeah. I, I mean, I'm kind of with you. I think the way we're heading at the moment is that we see lots of specialized ML, machine mm. learning applications, and they're kind of getting pieced together in increasingly complex ways. But yeah, I'm happy to, happy to put a bet on it. Nice. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's speeding up for sure. Great. Um, so, um, lastly, um, we, we're on kind of 55 minutes-ish here. So what we're going to do um, before we um, say thank you is how can people kind of get involved? If they're interested in maybe um, the implementation side of these sorts of technologies. How can people um, who are interested uh, start learning about it or start making stuff? So many different ways. Um, and that's the exciting thing. I think this is really accessible now. I The... First thing I would do is just get on a high level comfortable with Python. I think Python is probably one of the most accessible coding languages for this. There are some really good Python introductions on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. there's one, there's one, Google has a Python class. There's one called Learn Python the Hard Way uh, that I see recommended very often. Python is a language you, you want to have some, some you know, high level familiarity with if you actually want to start playing around with these, these models. Then... You want to get some kind of understanding of, of how machine learning works generally. Uh, Udacity have a really good course for that. So again, there's there's kind of courses for everything, which is really exciting. Mm. And then to almost take you the whole way to the, the bleeding edge of, of research, um, there's a really great class that I've taken that I recommend uh, called Fast.ai. That they uh, pursue a top-down approach to, to deep learning. Uh, so this is Top down is implement the uh, the model, have it do something cool, doing deep learning, and then work down from there. So you don't spend months or years, uh, you know, if you do a master's, bogged down 
in doing maths and then at the end of it you finally get to be hands-on with the machine learning algorithm you actually start there and then you try to un understand it and work backwards from, from the application um so they offer two courses one is like uh, an introduction to it for coders to deep learning and then the second part actually starts implementing some of the cutting edge stuff so transfer learning um yeah, some nlp stuff i think uh, and some time series analysis so i so really with only only taking a few classes and and probably in the space of half a year to, to a year depending on your appetite for it you can take yourself from knowing nothing about uh, about it or or about python to being really a, a practitioner that's that's capable of contributing to the to the discussion mm. that's that's amazing Thank you so much, Greg. Is, is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with um, before we end? I would just say, um, if you are thinking about getting into it, give it a go because it's it's really exciting stuff. As I said, I have friends that have are just getting into it now, and they a friend of mine the other day said, you know, I've I've had probably eight jobs in the last uh, eight you know eight years, as many years, and I'm now having a go at this machine learning stuff, and I actually and finished the work there, and I'm really excited about it. Mm -hmm. um so it's a re it's a growing area it's a really engaging area i think it's um highly relevant and highly practical skill set um and the job now for everyone is to try and start piecing the stuff together in a way that starts to solve problems and, you know that's the open problem and we, i think we need as many hands on deck as possible so if you're considering getting hands on with it giving it a go i highly recommend it and it's it's really really accessible Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Greg. And like you pointed out, um, we're the Machine Ethics Podcast. So if you have any questions for for us for next time or people you'd like us to cover, then uh, do get in contact because, you know, we're trying to um, add to the conversation and, and help people understand what's going on, uh, which is why we have the wonderful Greg with the amazing explanation today. So thank you again. Um, thank you for your time. And if people want to follow you or message you, how can they do that? Oh, great question. Um, I, I, ha I haven't been putting myself out on uh, social media much yet. I, 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 need, I need to come out of stealth mode on my Twitter. But you can email me, um, so at greg at decoded.com. Um, I would also say that aside from the open uh, the, the resources for, for any individual that wants to learn machine learning, um, if you are a company, if, if you're responsible for learning at a company, um, Decoded offer a fantastic data fellowship course where they take, you know, they take employees that have no familiarity with or very little familiarity with data to all the way to being a, a practicing data scientist. That's a really, really cool course as well uh, that we offer. But you can contact me, Greg at Decoded.com. Yeah, and happy to uh, happy to sort of field any questions that people have. Awesome. And um, I think they do a little um, decoded, do some sessions as well on data and chatbots and all sorts of things. So check them out as well. Um, thank you, Greg, um, so much. And I will speak to you soon. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks.